There we go. Up, Zach. Beautiful. Back again. We've done it. All right. All right. So, welcome to ZK Live. We're going to just pretend like this is starting from scratch. Yep. You are the director of architectural finishes at Kirby Perkins, correct? Yes. Which is a fancy name for meaning I, we get all the painters in the right places to do what we got to do. Love it. What, what, so how many painters do you guys have? Uh, right now, 14 in the field, and we have our staff in the shop. We have two booths in the shop handling our, uh, all our architectural work that comes out of our mill shop. That's, it's quite an impressive operation. The entire company is unbelievable. And the paint scope that you guys have is unreal. So tell me a little bit about what your job looks like today. And then we'll go backwards and find out how you got here. All right. Well, you know, as, as you know, the, the, the jobs are changing just astronomically from a scope standpoint and from the work from custom construction into historic restoration. Both of us are dealing with both of those lots. And uh, right now there's a huge mix of both. Um, we have a lot going on in both historic restoration, which is a one animal and then custom construction, that work plus the shop. So right now it's just, as excuse me to say it, but balls to the walls. Our motto, our company motto is bite off more than you can chew and chew like hell. And we're in the middle of that. Yeah, it's it's quite an impressive workload from, uh, you know, a massive 20,000 square foot custom home to restoring an old mansion that's 150 years old. In many ways, they're very opposite types of work, right? One, you have a beautiful, everything starts from scratch and you get to control everything. And the other one, you're trying to reverse engineer and investigate and replicate. So how did you get into this business? Well, um, I, in, in, you know, many years ago, 28 years ago, as I got out of the restaurant industry, when I decided I'm going to have a family and that industry is not going to be conducive to what I want to be as a, as a dad on nights, weekends and holidays. Well, little did I know that coming into this industry, that <laughs> that is still the same. You still got to put the muscle and the time in. But. Um, I got in this industry uh, through a partnership in landscaping and painting. And as I developed more skills in painting and my partner developed other skills in landscaping, we both kind of parted ways because he hated the finishing part and I didn't like the landscaping part. And that got me into this. And I had my own business for about eight years uh, and uh, wasn't a very good businessman with it. You know, there's a lot of people that have been through this that, that are nodding their heads like you are. And, uh, you know, I, I, I understood my skill level and know, knew where I went, wanted to go. But <clears throat> operating the business and dealing with tax laws and all that was the thorn in me. So once I landed here and was able to utilize the skills of the staff that I was with and my skills, it just, it just brought us to a whole nother level, which is, it's fantastic. This company just allows us 
to do amazing work on amazing properties and save, you know, historic fabric. So when you first started, did you start like most of us and just paint whatever someone's going to pay you to paint? Yeah. Yeah. When I came in, I was a general painter. Um, we have somebody here that's been here longer than me. His name is Chris and he hired me. And this guy is like, a ninja warrior worker. This guy does nothing for this company but produce. And he brought me in. He had already had a staff. He's brought a number of other people in. And the production painting during the 80s and 90s for our company had to be on pace because we were doing both large historic restoration projects by then and big new houses. And it was time to get it done. And so I came on as a general painter. And then once, you know, the crew started to be established and, and uh, guys were more autonomous, we developed different crews and separated. And I became a, a, a project manager, foreman, and then, you know, into my position where I am now. So I, you obviously have to have an extreme love for what you do to have excelled the way that you have. What do you think it is that drives that? I think the, well, this company has driven it first and foremost, because you can't go on any better job sites than I have in the last 23 years. I mean, we have restored some of the most iconic architecture uh, in New England by uh, architects that you know, th their designs have survived centuries of work. Uh, just just being able to do all of that is what drives me. Yeah, it, you're like a kid in a candy store, you know. Yeah. yeah, and learning the technical aspects of paint work, like like the guru stuff that you and I love, and um, getting more involved in the technical aspects is what really. Uh, drove my passion i think it was like you know is it paint thinner or mineral spirits or naphtha with oil paint like what's the difference what's the who, who cares what you use and then you start realizing there's a difference if you have a you know if you have a car and you put crappy gas in it might not run well but get that high test naphtha in there and that paint might behave better and temperature and and you know the technical aspects of painting started driving me of where i wanted to go because we were doing such high-end work that i realized that i have to bring my game up or i'd be left behind technology's changing uh, production rates are changing the way architects specify coatings and the way owners are wanting the way their places look all changed you have to stay up with that yeah, so you you were, I mean, incredibly fortunate to be in a situation where the the standards of your company are incredibly high, the the expectations of your clients are incredibly high, and the best the, the part that makes it all work is the budgets are high too, right? Because you can't do amazing work if no one's willing to pay for it. Well, that's that's partly true. Uh, it, to say that the budgets were high and the painters in the end always had a plenty of budget, that's not exactly the case. The rugs are coming next week. You've been here for three years and we've seen dirt and concrete. 
get the place painted and get the hell out. <laughs> I understand. You we know, I mean, that's a standard in the industry, and you and I know that well. Um, of course, the budgets were never pinched. Our company doesn't allow that. Jerry Kirby started it, and Tom Perkins coming in has just added to it that budget is never a consideration on the job. These guys would rather lose money and have a happy customer than to have it the other way. Uh, profit is never above quality, and that's what's made them successful for sure. The reputation speaks for itself. There, uh, yes, there, anyone who does not know Kirby Perkins, if you guys are not from the New England area of Rhode Island, yes, you have an unbelievable reputation. And I have to, then that obviously comes from quality. You don't get to work on the types of projects over and over again that you guys have without executing at the level that you do. Um, it's incredibly yeah, fun. It's fun because in the early days when I came in, I came in in 97. And in the late 90s, we had a team of artisan carpenters that literally would come up and try to find a defect in a putty hole while we were painting just to say, ooh, that's, that's a little moon there. You, you're going to get that, right? Just as a just busting on us. And we would be going back to look at their miters going, ooh, is that a is there a 32nd there that I can read? I mean, literally our company was founded on the best basis of just quality was number one. And that was, there was no other way. And you, you are proud to work for the company and, and the reputation was you work for them. How'd you get in there? So we were, we're all pretty lucky and, and, and the ride continues and we hopefully we can, uh, keep this cranking for another number of years. We've, we're 40 years in. I'm good for another 40. <laughs> you have the energy for it, man. You have the energy. <laughs> um, that, yeah, I think the company culture thing is, is so huge it, and has to be good to last 40 years. So that makes, yeah. it makes a lot of sense to me. that, that, that yeah. um, And it comes from the top. It yeah. really does. It comes from the top. The, these guys have made a culture that is like a family. And we, we, that, that's kind of how we feel. We just, uh, we jump on it and we're willing to do things for them because they, the way they treat us, we would want to be reciprocal because our customers, our company, it's all kind of like one thing. We just do your best you can and bang it out. Chew like hell. It's amazing. And I think it's, I really respect that you, you got to the point where you realized you didn't want to be an owner, but you loved what you did and you continued to excel. And I think there's, yeah. there's probably plenty of people, contractors or painters in this country that go out on their own because they think that's just what they're supposed to do. And that's probably not the best fit for them. I talked to a lot of guys and it's, Love of craft is not enough to run a business, right? And no, you have to be good at running the business. And sometimes that doesn't match. It wasn't a match for me. And and I think that it's your proof that you can still achieve great success and do what you love and not be the owner of a company. 
And maybe it is you're in a statistical anomaly that you got to, you found an amazing company. But I think there are, there are lots of amazing companies out there, and more people would probably be better served to go work for somebody and do what they do great. And well, I would, yeah, I mean, that's true. But it depends on. I mean, it's the support you get too. Yeah, I'm lucky. Not only is my company great, but they've amassed a, a talent pool that is unbelievable. The guys that I work with are incredible, and that—that's what makes our success. Our whole team is what makes us successful, and it's a really good team in an overall sense. Of sure, we're a little irritated at the carpenters still cutting wood when we're getting ready, but we know they're doing the best work. They know we're coming in to do the best work, and my staff is amazing you know we're, we're we're doing amazing restoration work amazing window work and amazing new construction and you know none of this comes to the company without the people the boots you know, on the ground and and my team is amazing can you talk let's let's start talking about restoration then because okay i mean uh, there, i love that let's it, go it, it's the most amazing you know we're in a very unique market where it, you guys are in Newport, there's all these old mansions in Newport. There's a lot of historic stuff to work on. You know, if you yeah. move to Kansas, where I grew up, there's yeah. not a lot of historic restoration going on. Mm -mm. There's not that many old buildings. Um, no. What do you let? Let's just broadly talk about what are some of the keys to historic restoration before we get into the details. Like, what what are the important pieces of a historic restoration? Well, I would say generally the first thing is knowledge. There's a lot of people that are going around saying we can do historic restoration, but they don't have the intrinsic knowledge or, or amount of experience that it takes to understand, you know, to undergo a historic restoration. And, and part of that knowledge too, and is what is I, as I try to do lectures for collegiate and some public places that I've lectured is, historic restoration doesn't mean always exactly saving what's sitting there. That's more of a preservation. But historic restoration can mean a whole, that can be four tenets of preservation, restoration, rehabilitation, and the education that you are, the, the experience that you have can help you understand where you need to be with a client in historic restoration and what their goals are, their risk tolerance, their budget, and where the property needs to be. So it, it, the experience and the ability to identify the issues that you have to deal with is paramount. And so how do you learn, how'd you learn all this stuff? From books, from both, both books and experience. I mean, you, you, you know, you have to, you have to read about architecture. You have to read about, um, you know, design. And I'm not very good at recalling all that, but I, I will continually go back and read things like the, um, the National Park Service, the preservation briefs. I'll go back and kind of look at that and some of the stuff is aged, but there, there, you know, there's a there's a good amount of information there that people can learn from that brings us all on a level playing field about how you treat a historic structure, historic structure reports, um, you know, how to do 
like painting historic uh, interiors uh, that, you know, there's preservation briefs on that. And not everything is applicable today with the laws and what's changed in our industry. But, um, uh, you know, that education was amassed through, you know, through a big effort. And a lot of it is really, really good. So going back to those things kind of helps keep me grounded, keep going back, education, looking at that, making sure that uh, the, the preservation standards are met on our projects and then, and then how we teach our own employees and uh, owners alike and architects. Yeah, I, I mean, I think it starts with that, the reverence for the history. Like, you have to care about this stuff because it, it takes a, a level of professionalism and passion that, that is, is probably not standard across our whole industry. Um, no. Was, but you know, when I talk to you, I every single time I talk to you, I'm just like, oh my god, I don't know anything. Like, you have such a depth of knowledge, and I have to think it's and it's and you're telling me you read books and you read, you read and study. You know, I I'm not sure if that's a common practice in the painting industry to read and study about what we do. No, but it depends on where your level is. You want to be a production painter and have 150 guys and bang out jobs. You really don't need to worry about technical preservation briefs from the, from the park service. You don't have to be, you know, in the window preservation Alliance. You don't have, that's a big tenant of that's, that's a big part of our jobs, but everyone can find their niche. But I think that knowledge is key. So you, no matter where you're at in the, in the industry, you've got to stay up because it's changing so much. You know, my word, since you've started your business from 1K to 2K to 3K to the, to the environmental laws that have changed everything from what we can do and spray and work with, you have to have education is key. Yeah, it, it's huge. If you want to be at the top levels, you have to know what's in that gallon. They change the formulas of stuff on us. Yeah. The labels look pretty much the same, but what's inside's different. And yeah, yeah, it takes a constant striving to learn. And and I I share the same passion for learning about this stuff. I mean, we're sitting here talking about painting for the next couple hours because I yeah. love it. like it's great. It's great because. Um, it does change a lot and there's a big challenge. And then you have, we have to transfer that down to our teams, which is difficult. There's yeah. not much more difficulty than telling a 58 year old painter who's been using oil based paint his whole life. You're going to start having to get away with that. Now I know you, you're hanging tough. You're great oh, with I, your oils. I'm, you are so old school. But, but, yes. But it's great. It, it's it's that that education that that brings it down, um, and I'm trying to spread the word because it's part of what what isn't talked about a lot in our industry is the the availability for the uh, current young crowd to like it's an emerging market is what I say. I think plastering, marble work painting, a lot of hands-on, dirty hand trades 
are uh, ready to just rise up. And if someone can come up and become successful and high quality, they're going to write their own ticket. Yeah. I really think that there's going to be such a demand for high-end quality craftsmen, plumbers, electricians, plasterers, painters, all that, that it's, it's so far behind that it's going gonna, it's gonna to catch right up. And if someone's smart and doesn't mind working hard, they can make, they can write their own ticket. I don't know. What do you, you think that too? Yeah. I, I mean, we see it all the time. There, there's way more demand for what we do than we could keep up with. And the same with you, right? Like yeah. the factor for me, my company is, is quality labor. It's, it's not quality clients that want high end, beautiful finishes. Right. And every time I find a young person that has that passion to learn and wants to learn, like we have some amazing apprentices and they're, they're going to write their own ticket to make, to do whatever they want. They get to work on cool stuff. They get to be compensated well because of it. And if, if they ever want to go out on their own, they can go anywhere in the country and get a great job or start a company based off of the skill set that they develop. Um, yeah, that's, that's, that's very important. That's very important because you're setting standards and, and, and showing the industry how you're, how you're getting it done and it's being recognized. And like you said, people that are coming in and work from, working for you can write their own ticket if they go somewhere else. It's fantastic. Yeah. And then my goal as a business owner is to make a place that you never want to leave. So I, I want to bring them in and give them all the skills they, they could ever have. I, I want to empower my people to make decisions and to love what they do. And I'm not here to get in the way. But that that is, that's funny because realistically, you're singing the same tune that I saw 23 years ago. I came in and I had my own company and I started jobs and I said, hey, I, I want to know the budget for this. They're like, why? I was like, because I want to know if I'm making money on this paint job. And the word from the top at Kirby Perkins at that point was, no, 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 you don't worry about that. You just do the very best job you can. And if you need anything, we will give it to you to do that. And we will worry about the money later. Quality and customer satisfaction was always number one. And you're doing the same thing and you're allowing your workers to do the same thing. So you will have people that will develop the same passion I did because you're allowed to do your best work. What more could you ask for? It, it scratches the human itch that we have as craftspeople to, you know, it's, I'm so glad you said that. Hey, I feel so much better about the future of my company if Kirby Perkins was doing this to start because that is what <laughs> I'm doing because they're crushing it. And if I could ever get to be half as successful as, that, as your company, you know, that would be amazing. But I, that is my same approach. It, and everyone in my company knows it. It is our culture. You pr yeah. All about quality. We'll go look at the budget later. My job is to sell it for what it costs. You go just produce. And quality is paramount. And, you know, that meant, that's meant <clears throat> 15 years financially for me. Mm -hmm. It's elevated our reputation. It's elevated the culture. And, you know, now hopefully we're starting to make some money to do it, doing it. But right. it's taken a long road to 
but my passion is in the quality and it's in step stepping back and going we did this right look at that driving down the road and saying look at that project i did four years ago man that's worth so much more than a few more bucks an hour to me and to my people that the people who fit my company are like that right and I think we're all, all of us crass people are like that. We, yeah, they, you know, you saw me nodding because like, it's insane. You, we go back to some jobs and I walk in the door and I'm like, wait a minute, what? Like, we did this and we have our conference room and we have a little rolling screen of some pictures and we're having meetings and we're waiting for stuff to start and stuff scrolling across. And I'm like, really, really? And, and, you know, I'm sure the company has has had its shares of up and downs, and I of course know of some, but everything the the cue the quality was always at the top of the triangle it was it's amazing like just like as we stand back and look at stuff and we want we want to start analyzing return on effort and we're trying to like kind of like you know come come into the new age of construction the new age of incredible amounts of paperwork and documentation. You know, people thought, oh, we're gonna go into a paperless world. It's, it's the opposite. But to be able to handle all that and put out the quality work we do, you just, you walk away every day just feeling a great sense of satisfaction. So, you know, I'm with you on that because when you're proud, when you go home and and you're happy and you go home, there's no, no better feeling. That's what, you know, it's all about is, is, is that sense of accomplishment and feeling good about what you do. Because then when you come to work and that's what you get, then you're a better person to be around in all the other time that you have that is not work. Yep. Right? Yep. As a lawyer, that's my goal is to like give people a great place to come to work. So they go out into the world and they're great, happy, positive people, not, miserable people who hate their jobs who are then negative to their family and friends and there's so much to be said for just like for loving what you do and getting to be i mean we're so mm -hmm. lucky, you know yeah, we are we are we are so lucky like you know saving the historic fabric of the nation and getting paid for it crazy what the hell else could i do speaking of that let's let's talk about carter's grove and this insane project that I, I, God, I wish I could see it. One day I'll go see it. Maybe I'll well, probably not, but. Uh, well, I might, I get, maybe I can get you in, but we'll Maybe you can get me in. I would love to see it in real life. And so first of all, just tell us about Carter's Grove. And then I want to get into all the details um, and, and talk about all of the different coatings that you guys went through. Okay. Which we, that, that part is incredible for sure. Um, generally um, it was a five year ago start for us um, and uh, we just finished up pretty much a good amount of the project there's uh, landscaping work to do there's farm work to do there's other work to do on the project but the main mansion uh, a true 18th century historic restoration was completed last year we've done some other additional modern buildings to, to, to uh, support the farm and and animals there um, it came from a pro uh, property that went through many owners and it's, and it's, 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 it's well documented. 
but it was owned by Colonial Williamsburg for a good amount of time. It went into private ownership. We were the ones that were chosen to do the historic restoration on it. And um, really, it's, the, it's, it's our crown jewel so far. So but, far. But an amazing project for, you know, a property, you know, finished in 1755, buildings and, and, and land that, you know, survived a ton through, you know, Civil War and Revolutionary War and, and Indian massacres. So um, it's a true part of history. It's, it's, you know, one of the biggest historic restorations in the nation in the last few years. And to be a part of that is just you, you, I, there's no words. There's no words for that. So what was the first, uh, it was a five-year project. So yeah. let's start at the beginning. What were the first coding things you had to do and how much learning and studying did you have to do in order to make this stuff happen? Interestingly enough, the first thing that happened was a company was uh, brought in for the owner to do um, an analysis on the fenestrations, the windows and doors. And they had pulled a number of windows and doors out and started working on them. Um, and the firm was, you know, had a good reputation and the owner uh, you know, started them off on a discovery phase, so to speak. And uh, we were brought in just to kind of take a peek during this discovery phase. And what we saw was, um, not our quality. So we kind of indicated, why don't you give us a shot to, you know, take over and do a little part of this discovery and let us see what we can do. Now, you know, we're a New England company, um, you know, doing a, jo a job that big in, in, in Virginia would, would have, was, you know, a, a, a large task, but we brought the windows back. And what happened was we ended up, my team, did a job on a couple of sets of windows that once they went back down there was it laid the foundation for everything to come because our the owner of our company jerry kirby understood what we could do and said we got to get a discovery phase that shows what we can do it didn't take us long to get that done when we brought it back down there and we were presenting it, it was evident that the quality and our ability was what was needed to restore that iconic property. And, and that, that's kind of how, you know, that's how we landed the job. We had the ability, we had the quality and, you know, faced with a daunting task of going up against Colonial Williamsburg Foundation, you know, it's a little different than the Newport Restoration Foundation and Newport Historical Society, which who we worked with for years and years. But, you know, anytime you're going, you know, um, in partnership with these, there's there's criteria to be met. And and we were able to go down there and produce something that we were proud of. And it was evident that we were the candidate to start to do the job. It was amazing. So that first phase, you took some windows and and stripped them. Yep. What yep. Was that? We did a full restoration. They were um, antique heart pine sash with a frame that was uh, tulip poplar 
and the sills were uh, American black walnut. So that's how the house was constructed in, in, in the 1700s. And the sashes, literally, when we, we use a proprietary process that we use with infrared heat and some oil and the way we handled it, the sashes came to life with literally no rot. And the previous attempt was torches and hard scraping and messing the wood up and it was it was a mess so we were able to develop a process that showed us that we have incredible antique hard pine sash with no rot tenon tenon uh wedges could be missing a little bit of damage here and there we can handle that in our shop the frames were tulip poplar approximately seven by nine inches solid. So a whole window from the front of the, from the brick outside to the inside of the plaster was one piece of wood carved on the inside for the moldings and carved on the outside for the moldings. Incredible, held together by two pegs at the, at the tenon miter joint. Like the simplicity of the construction, but the quality you could just, it was, it was not to be believed. So once we were able to kind of get our feet wet and, 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 and all of the uh, entities involved with easements, Colonial Williamsburg and the Virginia Outdoors Federation uh, Foundation, excuse me. Um, you know, we were able to show them that we we're here to save the house. We're here to save, you know, we can't save a windowsill by putting lead on it temporarily and water still getting in. But we got to do it right. So we sourced antique lumber from around the world. We sourced glass from Europe that would uh, match the uh, cylinder and crown glass that were in the house. We replicated horsehair uh, insulation where we needed to. And just once we got going, it was nonstop train and and. Luckily for us, the, the, the owner that was turning into a private residence, uh, you know, enabled us to do our best work to give the, give the property the grandeur it needed. That's amazing. So it started off with window restoration. And that, that process you were very familiar with. You had done that a lot. Um, yeah. What was the next phase of restoration? Well, obviously, the, um, there was an architecture firm and the input from Jerry Kirby, which was, you know, paramount to ensuring success. His, his ability to understand systems, to understand historic structure, architecture, uh, typical building methods. You know, we're gonna, we're gonna go in there now and we're gonna kinda, we need to, you know, modernize certain areas of the house. We have to adhere to deeds of easement. Um, so, his ability to put forth a plan in keeping with the architecture firms and the owner allowed us to make a grand plan for the, for the restoration. And, uh, and then it was, you know, kind of room by room, fireplace by fireplace, uh, amazing job on the outside of a Buckingham slate roof being peeled off and put back on with new flashings. Um, you know, everything done, with the standards in mind, with historic restoration standards that we uphold in mind, and with 
just the overall vision of the owner to to restore the property with a true 18th century historic restoration. So that's what was that was really what was in our wheelhouse. And once we got down there and started it, we we transferred people down here that uh, up here that moved down there to live. You know, we had staff that that moved their their homes and lived there. Then we had staff from up here that would go down on three to four week trips and stay in hotels. And then we en enlisted local craftsmen and we, we got a great, great group of local carpentry and metal craftsmen. And, uh, amazing. We just it came together amazingly to allow us to 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 get get the job done. You guys used H.J. Holtz, correct? We did. Rick Holtz and his team were paramount in our success on that project. I will have to say I, they started, I reached out to him in 2014 as we were gearing up to do the project, but I wasn't ready to utilize him until, you know, 15 or later. And he was just patient. He, you know, I, I reached out to four or five large painting contractors in Virginia and uh, some of them were tough to get a hold of or they didn't have a website or they, I was just, I couldn't find anyone that I was comfortable with. And I had one conversation with Rick and I said, we're not ready, but we're looking for someone. And you look like someone we could partner up with and little, literally he would check in and call me every three to four months and go, I don't want to bother you. Just letting you know, if you want to do one room or the whole mansion, I can help you, whatever, just checking in. And I would call him back. We would have a quick conversation. And, you know, it took about nine, maybe 11 months to kind of get going to where we knew, okay, this, this job is a go. And we're going to need some help. And we had our own staffing there. We had a staff of four, four painters. And we knew we would need more and, and local support. And he came aboard and literally bought, brought the people we needed every time. Like that guy, his team produced amazingly. They did the um, Fine Paints of Europe oil work in a few of the rooms uh, for us because they were certified. We wanted there, certified. Uh, 13 other, the 12 other master certified Fine Paints of Europe contractors. Yeah. How many? Yeah. Yeah. Have you met? Have you met Rick? Yes, I've met Rick. Such a nice guy. His team was phenomenal. No ego. We went through this mansion and needed to strip modern paint coatings from, I don't know, 12,000 square feet. And we had to remove all that paint. So that's no easy task. We had to bring it back down to the original plaster and start over because too many modern coatings, stuff was failing everywhere. We wanted to bring it back for a true restoration. His team did a ton of that work um, along with a, a couple of uh, staff members from our team too. I can't let that go by. Um, and they, uh, they just stayed with it the whole time. And in the very end, they were hanging high-end wallpaper. They were doing fine paints of Europe oils. 
They were helping us do uh, woodwork finishing. It was, it was fantastic. Great, great partnership with H.J. Holtz. That, that company, for anyone listening that's anywhere in the Mid-Atlantic, anywhere near the Richmond uh, area, you cannot go wrong with him. Honest, hardworking company. Very, very, can't say enough about very, them. Very impressively run company. It's like a third generation company. I yeah. They have yep. like a profit sharing system. The company is run amazingly. They have craft, amazing craftspeople. Um, H.J. Holtz on Instagram. Everybody follow those guys. Yeah, it's great. You, you, you can't go wrong with them. Yes. So what kind of, let's, let's tell me about the coatings that are that are in this restoration you you've told me about some of them i want to hear about these crazy what were some of the different types of coatings that you guys did well um, you know obviously amazingly because you have different areas on the property different buildings different areas in the main mansion um so we we went all the way from uh well first of all let me let me backtrack we did uh field micro uh microscopy uh and micrograph analysis and that was done by two private companies one that we hired one that the architects hired and also it was done by colonial williamsburg so you had a bunch of teams going in there and doing the little chip and burying it in epoxy and grinding it off and doing uh you know uv and all, all these you know lighting factors and laser analysis to find out what we had in there, which was really helpful to find out original coatings that were against the bare wood. This owner was really adamant of recreating the finishes, the look, or the ability to, to have the building restored in the proper way so that it was a true restoration. So the, the, that analysis by these companies in Colonial Williamsburg helped us greatly in determining, okay, what are we going to use in the future? So, for instance, we, we had a company um, come in to create hand-ground paint samples, you know, pretty much grinding paint pigments and oil to recreate finishes and find out what, you know, what the depth of finish was. Um, the fine paints of Europe uh, work that was done in certain amounts of rum in rooms um in areas of woodwork that was restored it would be true 17th and 18th century spirit varnishes and stains that i created through like i boiled walnut husks you know to create van dyke crystals which is a tea stain to make for for coloring wood and then a spirit varnish, and then oil and wax. Let's go back. Let's go back. You did what to walnut shells? Well, Van Dyke crystals is is, and you can buy them commercially. Is a product that you make a tea with, and it's made out of walnut shells. So it's a natural stain that was done way back in the day. So you know, as I research stuff and you know i go through tps and you know i mean it's what we like to do we like to be true to the nature of it like let's find out what the heck did they use that guy was mixed one guy was out in the yard mixing white lead into his paint and the other guy doing woodwork was whatever boiling his walnut shells 
the mason was burning oyster shells to make lime. You know, that's how it went in the day. So our our goal is always to try to try to mimic some of that stuff. Try to you know we're not gonna put lead on on the house and endanger the family, but you know in this project we 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 really wanted to step it up and make sure we were really authentic on a lot of finishes. So as I as I read about certain finishes, using a walnut tea stain was um, part of my sampling process, and amazingly enough on antique hard pine i used oil-based stains i used glycol-based dyes i used the walnut tea stain and in the end the votes were kept coming in what's that i'm like that's 17th 18th century recipe of walnut tea <laughs> and, it, and it and it kind of like that's what everyone gravitated to the owners loved it. It was nat it was typical for the period. So, you know, that that's kind of where we got started in a lot of those uh mixes. And and then many historic components of the house you really aren't allowed to alter. So we had to just kind of do basic touch-ups with utilizing other, you know, somewhat modern formulas for just little touch-up stuff, but generally all the areas that we milled, created, built, and installed. The mantra was, let's do it with historic finishes. So shellac and wax was used a lot. Oil and wax was used a lot. You know, spirit varnishes and... Spirit now, uh, basically alcohol-based. So either a pale or a garnet shellac would be used. You know, so spirit varnish is essentially alcohol-based. So, so it was great. Which is how they take the, you take the shellac flakes and dissolve yep. in pure 200% alcohol? In alcohol, and then, and then depending on the, the amount of cut you want, it's, it's a weight, it's a per weight ratio, and then, you, um, then you strain it, and then you can dilute it as you need it. My stuff was very light. I didn't need a heavy, heavy cut. I wanted to be light because I knew it was going to be a lot of oils and waxes on top. I used spirit varnishes in this project a lot for sealing the wood and locking in color. So you would so, do but shellac is just a great product to use and that, that, that I think people are getting back to, you know, French, French polish. I did a lot of French polish on crown moldings because you can go fast with French polish on, on something like crowns and flat and certain flat surfaces. And it just creates a, a super thin, but high gloss old fashioned furniture finish. So we, we love, I, we love to use, utilize that. And so, so you would go tea stain, shellac, and then wax. Yep. Or, or possibly oil varnish rubbed way back and then wax. So, and I would use a color, I would color the wax. So that if it, depending on how far I wanted to rub back and how much I wanted to uh, burn of edges, the color of the dark wax would get in crevices or get in burned edges to create a depth that would be typical for woodwork that's been manipulated over 
150 years and 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 gets that aged look. So then not only was it the goal to utilize period finishes, but recreate the period look. So you were that, putting new stuff in, and you needed to make it look like all the existing old stuff. Yes, yes. In in many cases, uh, you know, we don't want to ever recreate. You know. The mantra with historic restoration, too, is you never want to do a false sense of history. But in areas where we would either match something up or areas that weren't part of the 18th century restoration, but were part of the rehabilitation of the other parts of the building, we utilize those methods to create a seamless flow to the building but we weren't encumbered by saying we could only use these products. We, you know, we, we understood that we can use what we need to do, what, what our skill level would be to make it create, look like this is the same as the, the, the original staircase that was in, in the 1700s. And no, it's not. This, is, this stuff is three years old. The wood was antique and we sourced it from around the country, but we're able to kind of match things up and, 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 and tie it in. So that, you know, it always bothers me. I was actually watching the, the new season of the crown last night for a little bit with my wife. Yeah. When you see in on television and movies now, they, they want to show a building is old by having it look crappy. <laughs> that, that kill you. It kills me. I'm like, there's no way the king and queen lived in a house that was not maintained. No, no. I always, every time I watch these old shows, I'm looking at the finishes in the background, and they're like, they'll show a door that's like all weathered and looks like crap. And you're like, there's no way. So, But wait, that's the biggest market there is right now. <laughs> it, it's... it's that's the modern market. Everyone wants that. Give me that aged door. But it's like they, there's a difference between like aged and then like not maintained. Yeah. yeah. Like these beautiful old homes, it's not like nobody ever maintained it. So no, they maintained it. Yeah. They, 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 they waxed it up. Yes. It, it still looks nice. But I remember you telling me something about, uh, um, sword marks on the hand on the on the rail. Well, that is you know an unconfirmed story, but the 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 gist of the story is that during the Revolutionary War there was a sword fight between revolutionary soldiers and colonists on horseback in the main stairway, and there's major shop outs like you couldn't do it with a with a with a with a small knife you would need something very large and heavy to take a chunk out of and and this mahogany this, this is not mahogany i'm sorry it's a walnut handrail that is of four pieces on the main trunk and when it comes down to its termination it it transfers from four to eight to about 16 layers of handrail to to turn it all at the end so it's in a, it's just you know the craftsmanship is beyond belief the 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 flower the car flowers underneath the treads just everything about the whole craftsmanship of that property is insane but there's 
big cutouts and at the very end is a piece of metal that's jabbed into the wood that is has remained and the lore is that's the sword tip of during the battle like uh, the tip of the sword so you don't think we were gonna mess with that oh no no way no way so the you know whether or not um that's true or not who knows but the lore is uh, a, a horseback sword fight on the grand staircase like a picture don't didn't i feel like i have a picture in my head that i saw did do you did in that book the the you got because you guys have this amazing book about this restoration yeah. right i yes. i this vivid memory of a picture of a guy on a horse yes yes no 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 that's not in this book <laughs> it's in my own head that story locked itself in my head and i have a picture of a guy yeah. on a horse swinging a sword and hitting <laughs> um yeah, it i mean it truly an incredible property that's there's a lot of stories i'm trying to see if this Here's the main, here's the walnut staircase right here. And this won't do it justice, but there it is right there at the bottom. And I forget, and of course, I'm so bad on architectural component uh, memory, but the bottom of these long staircases that terminate in that circular uh, post, you know, without a post, it's individual balusters going around the, and there's a name for that, but at the very top of that uh, handrail at the bottom of the staircase, it was, um, you know, it's it's still there to this day. And we, and you know. All that stain grade right now, was a lot, wasn't that a lot of that painted when you started? Yes. Well, um, the, the analysis of the house showed that all the paneling, and which was typical, we, we certainly didn't, uh, you know, we didn't dispute that. Uh, would all have been painted in that time in Virginia. Uh, so over time, it had been painted in di in different mo different owners came through and painted it, stripped. It had been painted and stripped many times. And in fact, during um, the centennial, it was painted uh, red, white, and blue with like carvings of the wood, red, white, and blue, like woo hoo hoo so, you know, much to the dismay, dismay of many people who understood, you know, good Georgian architecture. I'm sure they didn't like that. But um, th through the field microscopy and analysis, we determined we knew what the original finishes were for the house. The grand staircase, which is made of walnut, it was under easement to not be altered. So, of course, you know, we protected that thing with three layers of plywood the day we got there and uncovered it, you know, at the very end. And that thing was cleaned up and, and, and brought back to life. But the paneling, that picture that shows all that woodwork as, as, as uh, waxed and dark uh, was painted back to the original color that was developed by field microscopy by Colonial Williamsburg and the other firms. It's, so um, it was it was all restored to what we knew to the best of our ability was original fabric. So when we talk about period finishes, that is like handmade stains and sh shellac coatings. 
Are there other period finishes that? Well, certainly, certainly the painters made their own finishes in those days. You know, those guys, the, the guys that were there were using their own titanium dioxide, using their own earth pigments, their own animal blood, you know, white lead, oils, turpentines, boiling stuff up, very dangerous, very crazy stuff. So, you know, in, in, you know, in that day, in, in, in the 1750s, it was typically a, the painter came and it was his recipe. It's like the chef coming to cook dinner. You don't ask him what he's putting in that sauce. You just enjoy it. Yeah. So, um, you know, so, you know, again, we, we are trying to replicate the finishes as best we can with modern and non-toxic finishes was our goal. Um, but the finishes ranged from oils, uh, milk paints, um, you know, uh, uh, lime washes, certainly lime washes in farm areas because of their anti, you know, antibacterial properties and, and, uh, and fung fungicidal properties. You know, we utilize lime washes on the property here on another building um, to try to stay true to form. And because part of the uh, structure was underground and, you know, it's, it's great. It's a great thing. It, it actually removes uh, carbon dioxide from the air, cleans the air. So, great. you know, period finishes, not only do they look great, sometimes they're actually really good. Yeah, we people we figured stuff out a long time ago. That yeah, we did. Yeah, we did. I want to kind of. I'd really like to get uh, some more of that into the market. Uh, lime, lime bait, lime finishes, mineral finishes, lime finishes are great to work with. Very healthy, renewable, and uh, you know they're acidic. Yeah. but but uh, or alkaline but they um there's no chemicals that you know the, you, you're not you're not dealing with uh petrochemicals um it's natural it goes great over any organic surface brick plaster even wood and uh the the properties of some certain lime wash paints it's good stuff i i want i i'm trying to um get kind of get that out get that out there to, to have people utilize more of that because they can do it on existing finishes with a proper mineral based primer. They can change over a room to that. So people that have concerns about, um, you know, biology stuff in the air and, 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 and clean air, it, it's an option for them. Yeah. I feel like lime, lime based coatings, mineral coatings are, they're starting to make a bit of a comeback. Yeah. Um, yeah. You guys did that beautiful house on Indian Avenue with all lime wash on the outside, right? Yes. And was that the Roma Bio stuff? No. And that was a combination of a, it's a proprietary finish that we developed because the true lime wash may have created a pH situation for very delicate gardens on the house and with the amount of work we had to do and the and the amount of opacity that the owner wanted on that brick it wasn't like a light coating the masons and we, you know, we got together with the masons they were concerned with runoff 
from that clay roof and that um, that brickwork that it could do some pH changes for the delicate gardens that they were putting in. So we used a combination method that allowed us to use kind of modern pigments with mineral and we, we were able, through experimentation, got to a level where we knew we could do it, but it wouldn't create a, a pH situation that runoff was going to change the gardens. So it's, uh, it's a great look. I've used it a ton. It's, it's kind of spread. Um, and it's a, it's a good combination. Uh, there's nothing wrong with pure lime wash on, um, on substrates, but it's a consideration if there's certain delicate gardens and, uh, you know, certain, in, in certain plants and uh, runoff on other surfaces that it may, that it may stain. Can you talk to me about vegetable oil putty? Yeah. I don't know anything about it, but I saw it in a post and I need to know more. I make it. Ha! Ah, no, I don't. <laughs> well, um, True vegetable oil putty, you know, typically was linseed oil. Um, we're using a product now by Sarco. Have you used Sarco putty? I don't think so. Um, Sarco is a manufacturer of a couple different types of natural putties that we use. And there's, there's one uh, line that they use that is for mill shop work only, type M. And then they have another one called Dual that is utilized for uh, exterior work that's in situ, you, you know, you do it in place. And that putty also can be used for metal sash. And we actually, strangely enough, last year and now going into this winter, we've, we have two projects with um, full steel sash that we have to pull the glass and, and, and uh, reglaze. So we'd be using Sarco putty for that. So it's a true, and that's, I believe, there's three oils in that. It's safflower oil. It's, it's vegetable oils. You know, the, so they make their proprietary blend. They put it in there. You know, it takes a while to dry. So you can't just glaze a window and two days later it's skinned and painted. We learn the hard way. And I know you're one like us that are not afraid to say, oh, we screwed that up. Yep. You know? And we've done that. We've painted it too early. We're rushing. We're going to get these windows back in and they don't skin up properly or the, the, the paint skins on top and wrinkles. And so you got to get that, let that stuff properly cure, but it's a good, slow drying oil putty. And uh, you use enough slow drying oil paint that, you know, it's got to dry. Yeah. <laughs> you, you can't, you can't rush it. Nothing you can do to make it faster. No. So well, that's what you use for window glazing. Then is that, yep. and, and that's like a seven to 14 day. Yep. Yep. Depending on airflow, like when we need to push it, you get heavy, you know, real good velocity, good airflow over it. Um, it'll kick earlier uh, than that. You know, we can get maybe eight, nine days. Also depends on the size of the, of the, of the rabbit. You know, yep. if, you know, some some old windows got a big old fat glazing bead, and it takes a little while longer. Some of the more 
the colonial architecture in Newport with this small, you know, typical, tw you know, 20 over 20 double hungs. They have a small rabbit and it's got a small glazing profile. You know, we might be able to get six, seven days out of that. So we're always pushing it. I know. Um, but it's, 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 hey, let me just do all this work and go put these windows in the corner for two weeks. And just I know it's the worst. You, you had them sitting they're done. And the contract is done and all you need to do is finish coat. So you're literally 10% away from from being done and, 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 and charging it out. And no, you got to wait. So but, uh, you know, true oil putty is, uh, you know, we've we we probably have 700 sash in, in the last 10 years and we have 200 coming up right now that are just coming just just on our doorstep and we have uh about 30 or 40 metal sashes so um i got a team of guys that do sash yeah i, I feel like you 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 guys probably have some unbelievable capacity to glaze windows quickly and for some reason i can't hear you you there there you go yeah you guys you guys can crush some glazing of windows huh yeah yeah we we can bang them we can bang I, them. I, it's perfect we got got i got guys that i'm like all right literally it doesn't have to look like a a profiled piece of asic these guys do putty that are like you can't tell it's putty <laughs> you know what i i would love to see some uh Instagram time lapse of puttying a window. I think that that would go viral, and I would watch it five hundred times. Um, Good to know. Good to know. I should do that. That's you know, that's that's part of the thing too. We do so many so much amazing stuff at the end of so many jobs. I'm like, damn, I should have videoed that, or I should have I should have had that. You know, I should have had that documented more and had more pictures. And it's like, nope, I didn't do it. Yeah, your company should just have an in-house photographer, videographer that just documents the projects every day, because the amount of unreal content you guys are producing, it, I mean, it's it's unbelievable the type of the projects that you guys are on, and you'll have I don't know how many projects you have going on at once, but it's a lot. And let me look at the let me look at the board. Twenty two. <laughs> Twenty two unreal either high crazy custom homes or insane like that house we looked at today like yeah if people could see you know maybe i'll post a, a picture on my story maybe no i probably shouldn't but the inside of that house we were at today the 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 level of millwork detail yeah the, i mean the height of the ceilings the the amount of picture framing the size of the moldings and of course you just walk up and you're like what, what was the architect's name? George Champlin Mason. George Champlin Mason. Everybody, could re we could recognize it when, we, as soon as we walked in. I'm like, the brackets, the clapboard, the 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 fat the the fat balustrade on some of the stuff, the lattice, and then going in and seeing the inlay floors. I'm like, oh yeah. And actually, that's not confirmed. I'm guessing. I'm still guessing, but I yeah, bet yeah, if I look, yeah. I bet if I look it up, it's there. But, I mean, that scale, that level of detail, the craftsmanship, we were in that place. It, 
you can't even believe how much mill work there is. You know, and you were just like, yeah, you know, you've seen this a million times. It's it's amazing. You know, we, we played that game of how long to paint this room. And I, 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 I don't even have, I can't even like, I don't have an off the cuff thing to say. I don't have that type of experience. And you're just like, bang, bang, bang. Because you guys get to live in that world and do that type of work. It's so freaking cool. It, it really is. And, and that, that was an exemplary example of amazing architecture by, by who I believe would be George Champlain Mason. I mean, the, like you said, the amount of millwork, but how it was put together, um, the, 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 the plaster relief stuff, the uh and the the flooring the scale of the rooms i mean think about it there's going to be a new owner coming in and the house is going to get emptied out can you imagine we walked in there and it's furnished if you walk in that plaza that house empty you're looking around going how do you even furnish this it it's a, i was like it, it the amount of t work the people who are moving out have to do to take all their stuff out i mean it's unbelievable <laughs> It's unbelievable. I mean, these mansions that they built in Newport, they're like nothing else. I mean, they're unbelievable. And no, it, it's it's insane. I mean, come on. Being so, able to work on these projects just really Yeah, it's it's we're so lucky. So, let's talk about estimating a little bit. Yep. Obviously, you've been doing this for a long time, so you have a large body of work, but how does estimate like what does your estimating process look like now and how has it evolved over time well first of all i gotta be honest it's the hardest damn thing i do to try to put a number on something and to be and i'm always conscious i don't know it's because i owned my own company for a long time i'm always conscious of like i don't want to be too much i don't want to have people like think like oh, what this guy's ripping me off in the same effect, I can't be too short. I'm working for a company that's here to do amazing work, but we're not here to lose money. Um, every job is different. There's no, oh, we've, we've seen this before. Yeah, I have a great body of work on houses just like that, but one can be peeling and just leaks all over the place, hasn't been maintained uh, this one can be solid, but you don't know what you're going to find when you start prepping. So estimating is definitely the most difficult part of my entire work each each day. No question. And we do a lot of it. There's a, there's a lot of estimating. And, and a lot of people don't understand what it takes to do estimates on big projects like that and what it costs. And if you don't get the job, you just spend a lot of money. You know, some of these projects take hundreds of man hours to estimate and uh so i i i use a combination of industry standards um gut feeling like i i gotta make like today you and i were in there and we weren't that far off we were a little off and then as soon as i said one or two things you're like yeah you're probably right i did i did not commit to my guess <laughs> at all i was like dude i no and what but when you look at your notes and you come back in and you say, yeah. hey, here's what I think it is. Once, once I look at my numbers, then we always are always pretty close. But yeah. I don't have a gut feeling for a 60-man-day 
dining room, living room we were standing in, you right. know. Right. I, Because I, I don't have a, a large body of work doing 60-man day living rooms. Right. And so I'm looking at that place, and I'm just like, yeah, it's a living room. It's big. It's beautiful. And I was like half of what you were talking about and just off the cuff. But when, when you look at a, a room like that, yeah, like the amount of picture moldings and detailed millwork, you're cutting in the walls on that room. You're cutting in the walls of an entire house. The amount of cut work in that room. You know, 100%. I mean, literally, you're probably looking at a thousand feet. Yep. In one room. And, and, and two sides, depending on the finish, two sides. So if you got, if we got oil on the trim and then even if you're doing oil in the middle or it doesn't matter what you're using, that cut, or if they're preparing it for wallpaper, you know, this, the same thing, the same preparation, the same sizing to do. So for a perfect surface for wallpaper is what, what it seems like they would do. But the amount of steps on those moldings, you can look at it real quick and go, okay, no problem. But if you don't sand all those edges and you got old oil finish and you go in there and put some coating on there, if you have a problem and you own it and, you know, we guarantee our work for life, our craftsmanship on all our work is for life. So I can't go in there and fool around and go, don't worry about sanding so much. If that 60, <laughs> 60 man day room has a problem later and, and we have to do it for free, it's a problem. So certainly we want, our biggest thing is to educate them owner on the estimate that's the most important thing we can just say 10 grand 20 grand 50 grand for any surface or any side of a house or any room but they have to understand what they're getting because they may get a larger price from someone else or us or they may get a less price from someone else for us but it's the value that's what's most important to the client so we try to say, look, we may not be the cheapest, but what's the value for you in getting it done right, having it be perfect? If some if some little things crack or, and we come back in eight months later and clean it up right before Christmas and it's for free because it shouldn't have done that, what's the value in that? What's the value in you saying, hey, part of my plan would be to do this on the outside so you have longevity on your paint job? Like anyone can do a short term and anyone can do a long term. It's their decision. It's their risk tolerance that's important. So that's where kind of I, I drive it towards where do you want to be on risk tolerance and money and, you know, and quality. But we always want the queue to be at the top. Yeah. Unfortunately, we don't always get that. The budget or the time sometimes pinches in, even yeah. for us. I yeah. mean, it's just nature of the business. Sometimes you got to get on your horse and go, baby, because rugs are coming in three days. <laughs> you know? So um, mostly a mandate model, like we talked about. Like, okay, four guys for how – like, how many mandates is this going to take me? Yeah. Uh, and then yeah. a lot of yeah doing this gives you a gut. Yeah, because, like, I'll understand. i got to go in there. Okay, my protection is going to be – Three guys for a day will have the place protected. Okay, now we're ready to go crazy in this room. And 
And then how many rooms do I have? Do I have to do protection on a bunch of places? Can I lower my overall cost on protecting this whole floor? Am I just in this room? And I got to do this one room and get out? I got to be quiet everywhere else? Or am I blowing the whole floor out? So protection, you know, is, is, is a huge element. Um, environmental controls, obviously, is huge to protect the workers, protect the house if people are in it, uh, make everybody safe. And then the products, you know, if, if, if you go in there and utilize um, a full oil finish in there, you're going to have dry times to wait. You're not going to be able to bang that out in a certain amount of time, you know, it, you know, so all that plays a, a fact. So I like to get a general sense of it. We kind of create a preliminary draft and then go in and say, you know, where are we at? with your decisions if you have full scope and decisions by an architect or a designer then we can go right to the specs but a lot of times on a, on a on a project like that we can give good advice of here's what we think will do well over this old oil finish in this living room like you don't want to fool around and just slap some latex paint on that it's not going to work for you you know we're gonna have to do let's full put prep satin on the trim let's put some hall neck eggshell on the walls and let's stay true to form. Will you pay a little more? Yeah. But will it last? Like, look at, I mean, we were at. Will, at, it, will it look just like this in 10 years? Yeah. It will. And yeah. what is that worth to not, especially in those rooms? Like, to go repaint the walls in that room in five years, that is, they're going to have artwork everywhere. They're going to have insane furniture. Yeah. And you don't want to be just coming in and changing the color on the walls in those types of houses. It's, no. Not plus, as simple as plus the texture. You and I looked, that was a quality. That house obviously had been maintained, repaired, and worked on with, uh, with, you know, with the thought of do it right every time. Yeah. There wasn't band This is how I want it to look in a general sense, except for like. The back side of the back stairway, we were we were pretty impressed. So was, yeah, and they had brushed oil on a, on so many of those walls. Yep. And yep. you know, I was just saying to you today, like I after we did that last project down in Western League, I want to put more oil on walls. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Which and the thing is, hey, hopefully you can start it with that because boy, you know, you can give a ton of paint coatings on a wall and someone says, I want to put oil on it. Well, we got to go backwards. Yep. We got to get down to a sound substrate that's level and then recreate a prime surface that is level, then go with that. So you're, you're going way back. And then, yeah. and there it is. There's the risk tolerance and money again. But in our industry. In some cases, if a project like that one, it might only, it might be right right in line because if i clean and sand that well oil over oil you know you do i would do an adhesion test but if i if we clean and scuff that up real well i wouldn't i would think that oil hall knock will go right over the top no question which because the because the, uh, the surface tension is similar and you don't you're not working with like you know these these um these modern paints that have a surface tension that's like this stuff is grabbing it's yanking it's paint yanking. right off the wall yeah and so people don't understand that sometimes they still are like oh just use you know 
just use it. It'll be fine. It'll stick. Oh, it'll stick all right. But if you have drying surface tension and, and they put it on too thick, so someone puts on a thick coating because they want it to cover well, and that's basically glue drying, it's yanking it off the substrate. It doesn't happen right away. But in three years, you have these cracking on these moldings, and now you have a ginormous problem. You got to start breaking that back down to way back in the day level of paint to fix it and reprime it and redo it. So, yeah, I, I'm I'm with you on that. Yeah, I, I think that is a that is something I I I learned fairly recently. I I was not taught by my past employers about the surface tension of a paint and with latex mostly with latex paints and how if you have a lot of coatings of paint already on a surface it's it may not be the best thing or, or to, you want to use a low surface tension paint that's right. not going to as it dries shrink and pull that coating off and compromise seven yeah. layers back and pull that paint off and that causes a lot of paint failures because and especially exteriors, so yeah. many exteriors in um, in the '90s, um, the high build primers and paints came out, and uh, the no need to prime paints came out, and they were basically loading that stuff up with the glue, and it would cover. You would have white paint that would cover anything in one coat. Slap it on thick. The brush would stand in the in the bucket. And you were like, this is miracle. And then all of a sudden, years, two years later, all these trims started to, to go. And that was a problem down in uh, Virginia for Colonial Williamsburg. That was a it was a problem nationwide uh, for historic properties because everyone thought, this is great. We can get away with the oils. We can be more environmentally friendly. The stuff covers well. Uh, it buries alligatoring, all the things they thought it would do. But then all of a sudden, uh-oh, why is it snapping off and peeling to that a bare antique pine? I, I just lost your audio. There we go. Oh, sorry. You got me? Yeah. Yeah. Um. So everything was going to bare wood. It was like, what? Is there water leakage everywhere? No, it had such a tenacious grab. It yanked the, all the layers off. Because certainly, as you know, what after maybe 12 mils of old paint, forget it. There's too much on the surface. Yep. Like we saw today, it's going to start to go. Yep. I, that's what, and when you see that, it's like, can I put another coat of paint on there? Yeah, I can. Will it look good when I walk away? Yeah, it'll look fine. Will you be back next year with a bunch of peeling paint? Yes. Right. And does it cost a lot to strip this house? Oh, yeah. It's yep. going to cost a lot. But if we look at what's the price per year, and I do it once, and you set it for 15 years, and it looks amazing, well, now that becomes the value thing you were talking about earlier. And yeah. It's not about price anymore. That's right. That's right. And interesting, as you said that, because I don't use that that comment much of price per year. That's a great way to put it. So yeah. that's, I'll be stealing that. You should, especially for our clients. Like our clients, yeah. not every client gets to think that way. 
right? No, but but they do. Aren't we have we our have clients, clients like they want to, they want to know that. Yeah, they, they want to know, know it. That. And they have that we're assuming you have to have enough money up front to invest in a long-term solution that's cheaper over time. Right. Not everybody has the amount of money no. to invest up no. front. But our certainly clients- not. And yeah, and that's and part of our industry is knowing that again, that risk tolerance of a client. But there are certain ones that they'd be actually pretty upset if they didn't have the option and they had the problem and they asked, could I have done it better before? Well, yeah, you could have, but you would have spent more. They would be not happy with that answer. So, you know, the education for the client on like, like you started with, with estimating, that's part of it. You got to be educate the client of here's the estimate, here are your options I'd like to do the best job for you. You know, where, where do you stand? There's their tolerance for how much money they're going to spend. Yeah. And we've talked with um, a lot of, a lot of the successful business people I've talked to on here in our business. The, the one of the most important things we can do is listen to what clients really want, you know? And yep. I know a big leap for me getting into the higher end market was to stop thinking like I was the client and I had my budget. And to start thinking like I was my own client and try to put myself in their shoes. Right. And and to someone who like that client we're looking at that house for, he just bought uh, this beautiful home. He's probably going to be there for a while. And we're assuming he has some funds because it's, it's a, it's a significant house. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So if we're that guy, I care more about value over time than I care about a cheap paint job today. Right. I ha- I've had to change my thinking to think for clients and not necessarily think for, well, I could never afford that on that house. Yeah. Well, I could never afford that house. So yeah, like, I got to throw my thinking out and, and give the client what's best for them. And right. at least I can't just go, I'm going to, I'm going to win this job by low price. So I'm going to go throw out the low price thing. Let's think about here are two options. Like we talked about, we're going to give them, the full restoration, full strip, and we'll give them a price to quickly repaint. And th- but then it'll, we'll educate them as to what that's going to look like, and then let an educated person, now an educated client, make a decision. Yeah, and they can, and they may be fine with that. They may be say, you know what, I'd rather spend this, and we'll do two elevations right now, just cleaning it up because these are the two elevations that I want to clean up, and I'm not going to strip it. And in two or three years, I'll start stripping it. Or they may say, strip the whole thing, and it's ungodly amounts of money, but they're doing the right thing. But it's, it's, it's right for them is what they decide. Like, you, yeah. know, you and I have to educate them, give them the options. And most of these people that are buying these properties, working these properties, this isn't their first rodeo. This isn't their first large multi-10,000 uh, square foot house that has you know, that many bedrooms and bathrooms and that old of a structure, they get it. If they're putting all new mechanicals in and they're and they're and they're getting the house ready for the next 20 years, they want to do it right. Sometimes, as you know, the paint budget somehow gets a little pinched. We always get pinched. It's the damn landscapers, I say. Any of you landscapers out there, I'm sorry to blame it on you, but damn. Those specimen trees are killing us. <laughs> it's true. Because 
our industry, I don't think we've done a great job. It's one of the reasons I have this show. We haven't done a great job as an industry in advocating for ourselves as professionals and advocating for paint, not and TV, HGTV has not done us any favors with this idea of just paint it. Well, we do everything and then we just paint it. Like, whatever. Right. right? The yeah. decision about paint is what color. Like, yeah, they don't, they don't, they don't think of it as a maintenance item. Yeah. They think of it as a, something to look at. Who cares? In a year, we probably will change the color. Well, you can do that all day long. That's fine. When you're talking about protecting surfaces on a mansion, it's a whole different animal. And so, luckily, yeah. most of those people understand that. But yeah, in the end. That budget usually is pretty pinched. I'm not happy about it. And and our these types of houses that we're talking about, these aren't the types of houses that get repainted for new colors very often, right? No. An, an architect just chose those colors whenever they chose them. And those are generally the same. Like At the higher and higher end you go, I feel like the more you end up painting the house the same color it already was. Yeah, pretty much, unless there's a decorating change. Yeah, but especially yeah. exterior. Exterior, yeah. You, no, you're right. You're right. Trim colors that are kind of established for a certain stone color, uh, they typically stay. A lot of the um, a lot of the architecture that have, have, you know here in New England that are just it, the house is white. That would stay white. You know, yeah, you're right. Once And they're investing a lot in it. So you don't want to have to try to change up stuff all the time because every time you change it up is a whole nother job. Yeah. And and I think at a at a lower price point, the more a, a more standard size house and they, the, the Sherwin-Williams people will tell you the average house in America gets repainted every five years on the outside because of yeah. color. That's that's not true in our world. You know, most of the houses I paint are the same color that the architect, when it was first designed, painted it. I, and it's funny. I just saw that it kind of popped up on the screen. I didn't. I wasn't looking at my phone for the. And someone had commented, "Same with famous architects. You'd never change the colors," which is true. Yeah. Some the and it's actually funny how it's true these days. How there's certain architects and certain um, high-end designers. You're going white dove, and 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 you, that's it. Like, and, and it's never changing. <laughs> You're going to use Patrick Ahern white. <laughs> he has his own white. <laughs> and but and and that's where it's one more reason why using fine paints of Europe makes sense, right? If we're not going to repaint this house every five years to change the color, well, we should put the highest quality, longest lasting paint you possibly can on, because if it gets you five more years, and that, you don't have, yeah, then you, yeah. Your price per year is actually lower, way lower by spending more money on paint up front. Right. Because it, it, all of a sudden, if the paint job doesn't look that good and you're kind of tired of it, you want to change the color. Now you're three coats in on your second paint job, not d dusting off, cleaning it, scuffing it and putting a coat on. Putting a coat on. And that, that's where we really love, the, like when we talk about this full restoration. Yeah. Yeah, we're 15 years, and then we're putting one more coat on and getting another 10? That's like 25 years. If we spread out that cost over time, it's incredibly cost effective. 
Well, it's it's old school. Yeah. It's old school. Yeah. I mean, that's what that's what people got. So the product absolutely pays dividends if you're willing to pay for it. And and that's that's how they do it in all of Europe, right? It's just what's the best paint we can put on? Like no one ever thinks about going to get a lower quality to save ten dollars a gallon. Like No, they don't. But amazingly around. in our country in our country that's the, there's like it's what? It's a hundred bucks a gallon? That's crazy. But it's like, no, again, value. So it's education and value is 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 you know comes from us. It is. It's, that's our job is to advocate for it. I, I talked to a builder today and he was like, that stuff's like, and they, they spec fine paints and it's $150 a gallon. I'm like, dude, paint, the paint cost is maybe 15% of this project. Maybe. Right. Right. And, and you're going to double your paint costs and get a significantly better product. And it's going to affect the budget by 7%. Like, yeah. So come on. It, it's spending. Your labor cost is where you want to recoup your value. Yeah. Yes. Don't be going cheap on materials. No. Although some of the, some of the European uh, waterborns now are like, let's talk way about up. those. So actually, let, I have a question for you first. The barn, the all the wood on the inside of the barn. At yeah, what is that coated with? It's beautiful. That's um, an impregnator. And a, and a finished coat system by Ilva. That's what I thought. That's why I was we were going here. Yeah. That's a Klima? Yep. Yeah. The Klima, it's, a, it's the Ilva Klima wood system with um, the semi-transparent um, impregnator uh, on the pine. And that was um, fir and pine. Miles, miles of it. It was three tractor trailers of beadboard. I mean, full tractor trailers. We set up two Quonset tents in a field and were spraying for like three weeks to do a million board feet of this stuff. And then the big beams, and then they came and hoisted it up and, and we finished it. But yeah, we love that stuff. That product isn't cheap. Sometimes labor cost on that especially if you're spraying, like we use a lot of it in the booth and the opaque side to prime and paint um, or, or to impregnate and prime exterior components for our projects. Um, the spraying goes so fast because it dries so quick. So we impregnate, scuff, um, and then the, 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 a 4B and a 6B and boom, boom, boom. And now we have a, it, you can take mahogany and it almost looks like ASIC in the end. It's so leveled, so perfect so tight but it goes so fast and the product is the the, the we're, we're looking at product cost versus labor and we're like wait a minute what yeah so but it's worth it because the turnaround time is incredible you know that, you, you, that, you, you, you mahogany trim and go from from impregnator to uh, final coat of primer so three coats in a day and then you can sand it also that day and stack it. So if we got a gang ready to go, we can put a trim package up for one of our projects out pretty fast, three days. We can have many thousand feet, linear feet of moldings and, and, and uh, trim for an outside of a house. And it goes up and it's solid. And that stuff can sit in the, in, in the weather for a little while before it's finished.
Yeah, there, there's, there's definitely a huge advantage to that, especially with the stain grade stuff. You know, the uh, yeah. using like fine paints of Europe marine yacht varnish for seven coats with 24 hour dry between every coat. Oh, it's tough. Yeah, it's aesthetically beautiful. Like, there's it, no it, question. I, I gotta give it that. It, it the way it looks in the lens is can't be beat. But but you gotta some, get it. You know, you're into polyesters now and epoxies. We're doing a lot of that. Epoxy base coats and polyesters and 2K polys are are coming up. But and you're dealing with chemicals and you're dealing with respirator issues. There's some of this stuff. We're kind of a fan of of this waterborne European stuff because we got a big slop sink with these custom hoses that we put on our guns and you spray for six hours and you go over and you wash up in the sink and wash your face and hands off with water and walk out the door and no volatile chemicals on, you know, in the air and no fire hazard. So something to be said about it. You love oils. So do I, but boy, it, there's, it, it, there's a place and a time. And, and that's where yeah. as experts, my job is to give the client what they want and so and what they what they're looking for they might not know what they want until we give them the options but you know if you want to talk about doing an exterior door stain and clear i'm going to give you two options and yeah. i tell you it's going to cost more money to do an oil-based varnish will it look better next to the other one absolutely but you're going to double the cost of doing that door if you go with oil and, and, and then you have tremendous maintenance. Yes. You got a clear varnish door. You're doing it once a year. I don't care who you are. But, I, and, and that's, I, but I, I would say that's true for all, even, even with the Italian stuff. Like I don't know. we're getting, we're getting two or three years out of our patio furniture and doors. You, you got to really, you got to get to the mill thicknesses. You got to go double double on the impregnator, double double on that first coat, double double. For in your clear, you get more UV protection. But yeah, either way, I think exterior clears need a lot of maintenance. Oh, for sh no, no question about. Which it. is something that our industry sucks at selling and keeping going. Because I look at and fix way too many exterior stain grade projects that have not been maintained, and it's not because the client didn't refuse to do the maintenance i well I, they, they 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 weren't educated that they, they weren't had, they they had to know and then how many nightmare thresholds have you done <laughs> <laughs> it's crazy and that's where i think as as a contractor my job is to is to think for my client i'm i am the professional my job is to say hey we're going to do this and then i'm going to call you back every year to two years and i'm going to say hey it's time to do your door you can tell me, no, I don't want to, but I'm going to call you and say, it's been two years. It's time to do, put a coat on your door. That that's, that's a great point. That's a great point. And a lot of people miss the boat on that. And, and, you know, as we're busy bouncing around our projects, I would say, yeah, I should have a little bit more of a retention board up to just go call the person. Cause a lot of times we'll go back for other maintenance and I'll go, Ooh, that doesn't look so good. Let me do that. And they're willing to do it. But um, great point. That, that's a that's a good improvement that I could do is have a little yeah. bit more of a retention look at stuff. I do it for a lot of our commercial clients and our restaurants that we work that we work for. Because, but it doesn't mean that 
our our other clients are less important on that and they would appreciate that so that's a, that's a great way to say i'm calling you back yes i just usually us for us it's more visits but if you have it like kind of scheduled and a way for you to go hey i got to call that guy that's actually uh, you know i'll when take I, that i'll just, take that I'll, under my belt that's great and a year in advance i will make a, a calendar notification that will say you know call such and such for exterior doors. Mm. And if it's a fear maintenance cycle for say a deck, right? I'll put two years in advance, I'll put it in my calendar. Right. And that way, cause I, you know, I'm never gonna remember. Like I, I, I'm not gonna try to pretend like I remember where all of our projects are at and how many years. So, so I need to go back here and put a note here. <laughs> I need to put a note up here to say in a year. Yeah. See, you're doing it electronically. I still got my paper calendar. Maybe you gotta I'll... have a digital calendar because you don't have 2013's. Uh, you can't mark it on a day. <laughs> oh, and it's right up here. Don't worry, I got I... it. But but that's the kind of stuff that yeah. Too often we get called, and now or like we're doing two doors for a client in Middletown on this gorgeous house, and they're now gonna get scrapped. Like they need to get new doors because yeah. they weren't maintained. They're to a point now where if I were, I can't strip them. They're, they're too far gone. They're yeah. not, you know, there's, there's a veneer on the plywood. It, I can't bring those back to stain grade and have them look nice anymore. Yeah. They've been too weathered. And honestly, that's not the client's fault. That's the previous painter's fault. Yeah. 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 No, no, you're, you're correct. You're correct. That's a good way to do it, of, of pre-scheduling it. That's and, great. For contractor, it's great. It's, it's built-in revenue. Every time I do an exterior deck, anytime I do a stain grade deck or an exterior stain grade door, I just went, oh, that's recurring revenue. Right? Yeah. Yep. Retention life. contracts are huge. Yeah. They're huge. And if you did a good job the first time, they're, ha they're having you back. Yes. And then your face... Then you get more FaceTime. You're back at the project. Yep. Yep. Like we're lucky enough to be on our projects a lot for, for the other maintenance. But I love that idea to be a little bit more ahead of the game on certain things that I may not think of. Like, hey, we did your patio furniture two years ago with that Italian waterborne varnish. If we do a coat this winter while you're away, yes, you'll save in two years. Rather than waiting till they go, hey, the stuff is starting to look a little chippy. Let's do it. Yeah. You know, we're not reactionary all the time. We are, you know, we, 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 we get back to clients a lot. We do a lot of, of general maintenance. But I like the idea of having, having it scheduled like that. It's huge. Because it would just pop up, call this client about their deck. It would be out of the blue for me on my phone if I wasn't thinking about it. And I'd be like, oh, hey, customer. We did your deck two years ago. How does it look? Oh, it looks pretty good. Go out there, look. Actually, it doesn't look good. We've got to fix this and do a coat now, yeah. especially obviously with decks. My God, we tell them if you call me when this doesn't look good, it's too late. Yeah, it's more money. If yep. you cost more money, if if but if you call me and it's all uniform and I get to show up and put stain on, that is a much more cost-effective system than I show up. It's blotchy. We strip it. We get it to uniform and then we stain again. Yeah. Yeah. No, that makes sense. That's a good point. I, I like that. I like that kind of advanced scheduling. Good point. See, I learn something every day, bro.
I got white. <laughs> I got white hair, but I'm not afraid to learn. Let me tell you. No, no. But that's why you. That's why you are where you are and doing the level of work. Let's talk about um, the new custom homes because you have a lot more experience in uh, new construction custom homes than I do. Yeah. What does that look like for you guys? And what are some of the differences between that and the restoration? Well, it's a whole different animal, obviously. Restoration is old surfaces, old old paints, uh, different mindset on what you can do. Um, you know, a new custom home can be typically anywhere from like a very simple paint job, be productive, crank it out to very ornate, crazy, let's get some Venetian plaster, let's get some fine paints of Europe in there, let's get some incredible shoemaker papering, papers and fabrics. So it all depends on literally who's driving the bus on the finishes. You know, depending on the, on the designer and the architect, that can sway it one way or another greatly. Most of our projects are pretty high end. So there's usually a, a, a full team assembled to do fabrics, wallpapers, paints on the design side. So we will coordinate with them. Um, we're usually there to be able to give them good advice because as you and I know, the industry has changed so much. Sometimes architects and designers are putting out boilerplate specs on new custom homes and you're looking going, that's not going to work. That's not even available anymore. Yeah. So, again, education to the client or the designer or the architect is, you know, if we have our information knowledge, if we have our knowledge base up to the level that they can trust, usually they go with that trust. And we can say, look, this is a better product. This is a better method. And uh, we'll give you a sample. That's the other critical thing, too. We are just sample crazy. We want to say we're going to just do a restoration of your window and we won't even charge you. And you're going to see what you get from us. And then we'll know how much it's going to be. Here it is. And the, the it speaks for itself usually. So same thing with custom homes with colors, finishes, papering, you know, surface details, gloss levels, all that. Yeah, I talk about that a lot. And, and it's something that it, when I first started getting into the fine paints thing, I was religious with my sampling. To, to talk to any client and mm -hmm. i've recently i on the sales call in, in the estimate i i'm i haven't been bringing samples as much because we have a reputation now you can see it all on instagram but yeah touching and feeling high quality coatings there's nothing like it and so i i'm i have the guys making a whole my, my goal now is to drive around in my truck with every coating that we use on a sample board in a in a little folder like a little box in my truck so i always have everything that we have that we do so i can say oh here's a dark color fine paints gloss here's a dark color satin here's a wall paint here's a stain grade sample because sampling is everything right you and i can talk about stuff and know what it looks like and all they the but they don't yeah but clients can't project past no. what they see you know in their hands so i, I love seeing in the lighting it has to be in their mood in their lighting i love dropping off a bunch of samples and going go out tomorrow when it's sunny and look at it outside come back in the house even if it's an interior finish go outside and look at it look at it in the sun bring it inside 
stick it up against the wall behind the lamp and look at it at night you know when you're when you're when you're when you're chilling in the room or just look at it and dip, do, look at it with your fabrics you're right uh, for them to have it uh, the touch and feel of it is instrumental that's it's that's amazing it has been two hours and i don't want to take up any more of your time Tim, thank you man thank you so much for coming on Zach, I appreciate it very much. You're doing a great job. Um, love these, love these podcasts and videos that you're putting out. Um, happy to be on. Pleasure to work with you. I hope I get to work with you soon again. Um, and you know, really, just you know, in 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 closing, I just hope a lot of young people can kind of look at our industry and feel that it's not just like a dirty job that no one wants to do. The satisfaction, the ability to put on real historic or real world high-end finishes on new work is very satisfying. And there's a there's emerging market for people for that with the right education and the tools to become skillful. And there they be a person like you that's young, starting your business, doing high quality and getting a reputation for yourself. So that, you know, I think there's a there's a market out there for that, and you, you know you're proof of it. You're starting nope, you're starting I, off too. But before you leave, there's three questions that I ask everybody on this podcast. I almost forgot. It's been so all right. Excited. Oops, uh, my battery's got gotta go. <laughs> the last one's the best one, all but right. these first two are easy. So, I need your favorite piece of paint paraphernalia, tool, piece of equipment, you name it. What is your favorite? piece of paint paraphernalia infrared burners that's it that's a tremendous answer we have not had that one yet <laughs> we talked they about have made our life they have made our life amazing with sashes and then we've used them now to kind of cook and create different techniques with oils and finishes with infrared so it, it's just like we we've taken it to another level with it um I look forward to maybe getting lasers and, and uh, dry ice going with someone like you. But uh, for right now, like just the, 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 the best technology and fun thing we, that has helped us, definitely infrared. And it, and it cures the 2K polys so fast. Mm. Oh, do you use it for that? We, that's what we, I use, I have a big wide infrared heat lamp. Yeah. You can put 2K poly under it and 30 minutes later it's cured. Mm, so we're, not, we're not rushing out like if, you know we have one that we're gonna respray or something and try to get it up to speed yep the infrared heat is phenomenal for that love that okay okay polys love infrared heat yep okay love that number two how about a diy painting tip for people out there who are not professional painters what is like the one thing you you wish people would know when they go to do their own painting do three times as much prep as you do to finish it's <laughs> all about the prep that doesn't matter if it's one the guys on my team your team or harry homeowner it's all about that just hasn't changed ever in our industry if you yeah. skip the prep it's not going to be as good it's a cliche People seem to know it to say it, but I, I think when people do their own home projects, not once they start rubbing the sandpaper, then they're <laughs> like, 
Forget just throw it, it out the window it. and they just start painting. <laughs> all right. So that's all right. That's good. I, I passed the first two. Okay. All right. Now I need you to dig really deep. And yes. I need you to tell me the worst, most embarrassing, biggest mistake on a paint on a job site that's ever happened. Yeah, so many. Um <laughs> I painted the wrong house one time. You painted the wrong house. I did. Oh it was a good story. Why do you think I'll tell the story? Because it's been a while. It was the first podcast ever I told the story. Okay. So good. I worked for my dad for a couple years back in like high school, early college. And yep. uh, it was back in the MapQuest days. So or yeah. before GPS. So he went online and he showed me a picture of the house. And it was the ugliest house I've ever seen in my life. It had uh, architectural shingles that went down the side of the house all the way almost to the ground. And roof, like, roof shingles like roof, that? Yeah. all the way down. And just like a little cutout for a window. And, you know, they were, it was like a, a duplex in Narragansett. It was a rental property and it just had some trim. So it wasn't a lot of, pro a lot of work, but yeah. it was the ugliest house I've ever seen. So I saw the picture that morning and he gave me the MapQuest directions. So I was following them and eventually there was like one more left, right? You're to the very, yeah. very bottom and I see the house. So we stop, we get out. We prepped, we painted it. It was a three-day project. And I think <laughs> two weeks later, my dad is like, hey, did you ever paint? Like, how come we didn't paint that house or something? I'm like, dude, I definitely painted that house. And he's like, the client said you didn't paint it. And I'm like, I, no, I 100% did. I'll tell you. And I remember it was on 4th uh -huh. of July. He was like, all right, let's go look at it. So, so we drive up. I drive to the house. And sure enough, Two streets past it on the on a corner was the actual house. Oh my gosh. And I had to be like, oh my gosh, I painted the wrong house. And so we had to paint the other one. <laughs> that's well, that's on a business side. Mine was almost more personal. I epoxied myself into a corner. <laughs> PPG Aquapon solvent epoxy. And I'm like, all right, I'm going to go all the way out. I'm going to turn this corner and then I'm going to come down this area and then I'm going to go out this door. Well, it's this commercial building and, and they had put a bar up and locked the door. So I epoxied myself. I'm, I'm in full respirator gear. There's nothing, I, there's no cell phone. This is a while ago. No cell phone on me. And I'm like, Oh my God. And I'm looking around. I'm like trying to think if I have a box of screws, I'll, I'll put screws through the bottom of my shoes and try to golf shoe it out. Nothing I can do. It's, it's starting to tack up. I have to wreck the floor and walk out. Oh my gosh. It was the worst. I had to call the guy. It was like, I'll come in tomorrow. I got to do another coat. I mean, obviously, in the end, it wasn't that bad because it wasn't fully cured. And I was able to quickly get a batch and just do the area. It didn't, you know, as you know, if you mix up three yeah. fives of epoxy of gray yeah. and you get the fourth five later, it's not. The, and I don't know why it is 
why the hell it can't be the same gray. So I got it all done and he was like, oh, you know, and it was like embarrassing. My head's down. The color is slightly off, but it's a commercial property. And once they re-outfitted it, it was okay. But I'm standing there going like, what can I, I'm, I am not Spider-Man. Like, what can I do? <laughs> I'm like, I need screws to put, to screw them through my, and then I'm like, well, if I take my shoes off, it's, then it's on my feet. Like, I can't do anything. <laughs> That's so, so um, no, it's all good. You know, you, you learn by your mistakes. I've made plenty. Um, my staff just generally is is are, are the kings of everything that I do. So even if I screw up on a sample or a, give them a recipe that doesn't quite work, um, they're always there to just make up for it. So that that's that's what makes the success that our company has is our is our gang i can't take the credit for what we do individually it's a team effort and i just am super lucky to be working for a company like this with the staff that i have that makes it possible for us to do some of the best work in the nation yeah no doubt yeah. so well, it's great thank you tim everybody go check out kirby Zank Zach, thank you very much. Have a great night. I'll talk to you soon. Awesome. Bye, right. Tim. Yep, bye. Yeah, that that was an amazing interview. Tim is an awesome guy. Uh, super knowledgeable. Um, the, the level of project that he works on on a daily basis. To manage a team of 18 people the way he does. Uh, they have two spray booths at their shop. Um, just awesome. So... Everybody, thanks for watching. Um, again, I don't have the reviews. I have to print out the reviews tomorrow and read them on Sunday. Um, but if you like the show, let me know. Write me a review. That would be awesome. I really appreciate it. Um, and everybody, have yourself a great night.